Hello friends, I'm Wayne Shepherd, introducing a classic rebroadcast here on Encounter God's Truth. It's the beginning of a two-part series by Bible teacher Dr. John Whitcomb that leads into Pentecost Sunday, which is next weekend. We'll take these two weeks to think about the subject of Pentecost in the Old and New Testaments. We're thankful to have treasured messages like these, recorded by Dr. Whitcomb several years ago, that we can still bring to you today. So thanks for joining us, and may God bless you as you listen. Today on Encounter God's Truth, Bible scholar Dr. John Whitcomb begins a two-part study on the significance of Pentecost. We'll start by looking at the Old Testament background of this harvest festival, which God gave to Israel as a special time for all the men of Israel to gather for worship. It's described for us in Exodus chapter 23, Deuteronomy 16, and especially Leviticus chapter 23. Hello, I'm Wayne Shepherd. So glad you've joined us once again. You know, according to Jewish tradition, Pentecost in the Old Testament was remembrance of the day when Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai, when God officially formulated the nation of Israel. But Dr. Whitcomb will explain that the greatest need in ancient Israel, as it is today, was for a true knowledge of the Lord in each individual's heart. He will show us the basis for the salvation of Old Testament believers and how God will be faithful to the entire nation of Israel in the future. Now, there are a lot of details in this message today, so remember, you can always go back and listen to it again on sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. But now, here's Dr. Whitcomb with this week's lesson entitled, Pentecost in the Old Testament. Friends, I take this opportunity to greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who wants us to know certain things that happened to create the world, to create the nation of Israel, to create the church, and what he's going to do in the kingdom that's coming. Amazing things have happened. Of course, as we know around the world, Christians will be celebrating the ascension of Jesus. Forty days after his resurrection, you remember, he was with those disciples, Acts chapter 1. And then he went back to the right hand of his Father in heaven, where he resides to this very moment. Now, just a few days from now, will be a celebration of the day of Pentecost. What was that? Well, ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Spirit of God came by his instruction with the will of the Father, as we shall see. This was to create a new organism, the church, the body and bride of Christ. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God had prepared the people of Israel for something special that was going to happen. There's a close tie, as we realize, between the true church and true Israel. Because all the early Christians, as we realize, were Jews. And they were saturated, in fact, in some cases, obsessed with the Old Testament perspectives on life and the world around them. Now, you see, friends, back in the book of Leviticus, a book that's not too familiar to most of us Christians, I'm sorry to say, God explained the calendar that Israel was to observe throughout the year. Passover, that was, of course, in the springtime to celebrate what? the emergence of Israel from Egypt. You remember what God said about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12? He said, The blood shall be for you on the houses where you live, Exodus twelve thirteen. And when I see the blood, I will what? I will pass over you. I will not destroy you. That doesn't mean they will be saved spiritually. It means they'll be protected physically. The Egyptians, thousands of them, remember, died when that destroying angel who was actually the angel of the Lord, came 
to judge the gods of Egypt. So they were to protect themselves from that destruction by putting blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and God would pass over them. He would protect them from what they deserved, I'm sure. Because about 50 days later, they launched a course across the lake, the extension of the Red Sea, miraculously, and came to Mount Sinai, and there they began to receive the law of the Lord. And when when you read some of the things that God told them to do, all these instructions, they were told how to observe the Passover, Leviticus 23, and what else? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would last for seven days, leaven symbolizing what? Evil, corruption. They were to observe first fruits that first Sunday after uh, that Sabbath, uh, and then 50 days later, listen to what was to happen. Are you ready? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15. God said to Israel, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there should be seven complete Sabbaths. That's 49 days. Now listen. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you will present a, grain, a new grain offering to the Lord. But wait a minute. What was in that grain offering? Listen. You will bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Baked with leaven? That, that's been a problem for centuries for Jewish people to understand. Leaven is a symbol of evil. Well, of course... What we now know is that is a prediction, you see, of what the church would be like. We're not glorified yet. We're saved by the grace of God, as we shall see. We're spirit-baptized, but we have sin in our soul, heart, mind, conscience. We are not yet sinless, which will happen when we die or are glorified. So, friends, this, the leaven that was to be included in these loaves was God's foreshadowing of the character of the church. You say, was the church predicted back in Leviticus? No, not really, because God made it very clear through the Apostle Paul. Remember in Ephesians chapter 3, he said, In other generations, the mystery of Christ, that is the church, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What's the, what is the distinctive of the church? Verse 6. We're in Ephesians 3, 6 now. To be specific, says Paul, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yes, we're all together one in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And I say that is amazing. Thank you, Lord. Finally, through the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers, the distinctive characteristics of the body and bride of Christ are made known, as we shall see. But you know, so sad, when the Israelites received the law, after they had gone into the Sinai Peninsula, remember, across the Red Sea, away from Egypt, that was the creation of that nation in a, in a real way, with hundreds of laws, six, over 600 distinctive commands, do this, don't do that, do this. To, the law couldn't save them. It gave them a, a terrifying glimpse into the holiness of God. And therefore, they needed what? They needed to believe that God could save them because they couldn't work out their salvation by themselves. 
they had, like Abraham, believed God, remember, it was counted to him for righteousness. That is how they were saved. They were saved on credit, friends, through faith. What do you mean on credit? Romans 3, Jesus paid for sins committed beforehand. God the Father knew the price would be paid by his Son, and on that basis from Adam and Eve on down to throughout the world, down to the time of Christ, that is how people were saved, by believing the word of the Lord, like righteous Job, Melchizedek, others that we read about in the book of Genesis and the Old Testament. I say, Lord, that is amazing. You anticipated ahead of time, you knew from all eternity what that church would be like. But you know, when Israel received the law, they did not honor the law of God. They set up a golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And they were blaspheming God. And what happened? 3,000 of them died. Exodus thirty-two twenty-eight, worshiping a golden calf. The exact opposite happened on the day of Pentecost in the creation of the church. 3,000 men believed. And I say, Lord, what a fantastic transformation you made on that day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. So many people, friends, have a problem understanding how Old Testament people were saved. They had not seen Jesus. There were prophecies, yes, all the way back to Genesis 3.15 about the coming of the Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. And on the basis of that promise, remember, that God made to Adam and Eve, they believed God and were born again, regenerated and saved. But you see, when Israel came into existence as a nation, they needed to be told over and over again, you don't get saved by offering a sacrifice at the altar. No, by doing any good thing. No, but by what? By belief in your heart. And that was a special way that God described it for a Jew. What was it? Heart circumcision. Because obviously, friends, physical circumcision never saved any eight-day-old boy, nor today either. What does it mean when it says you're to circumcise your heart? Oh, Deuteronomy. Listen to this now. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise in your heart and stiffen your neck no more. And I say, now, Lord, what does that mean? Well, Moses adds to that by the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Listen to this now. Moreover, the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. That is how they were saved. And all through the Old Testament, that was taken for granted. You're not saved by works, but by what? By faith. Now listen to Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31. This point is picked up and carried through over and over again. Many Christians do not understand how that worked out in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Listen carefully. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand and bring them out of the, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Oh, thank you, Lord. Now we can see something special 
that you're going to do by the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the New Covenant, the New Covenant. So every Old Testament believer was participating in advance in the New Covenant provision, which will be for the whole nation, you see. That's what Jeremiah tells us in chapter 30. The whole nation will someday be saved, just like Romans 11. All Israel will be saved, will participate in the New Covenant. So that when the church was created 2,000 years ago, we were made to participate in that perspective only, in that aspect of the New Covenant, namely heart salvation, heart faith in him. Not inheriting any land, no, uh, or, or we won't have a different king, no. Israel is Israel, the church is the church, and they're, they're eternally, everlastingly distinct programs of God. But one thing they have in common, friend, here's the point. They have a sin nature, both Jews and Gentiles. Jews, Jewish believers and Christian believers have a sin nature until what? Death or resurrection. And that must be dealt with by the Holy Spirit in a special, special way. And I say, Lord, help me to understand what this really means. And so, friends, it's amazing as we look back over Israel's history. For 1,400 years after God gave them the law, the commandments through Moses, they did not really understand as a nation how to be saved. They thought, if we just offer sacrifices, that'll be enough. That's all, just a token outward gesture. No, not at all. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah the prophet. Chapter 4, Jeremiah 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. You see that heart circumcision again, like Moses said? And remove the foreskins of your heart. Physical circumcision was commanded, required, but it was infinitely insufficient. It was, it was merely a token of membership in the nation of Israel, but not of salvation. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now listen to verse 14. Jeremiah 4.14. What does this mean? Here's another way to put it. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? You see, friend, God is interested in the heart of man. The heart of man is deceitful above all things, a desperately wicked who can know it. We need something of infinite power to deal with our heart problem. And so Jeremiah went on to explain in chapter 9 some amazing things about this matter of heart circumcision. Listen to this. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Now what do you have to do to be saved? Listen. Let him who boasts boasts in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I need to be reminded of that, friend, every day I live. God knows what he's doing. When we get to heaven, we won't say, oh, no, we thought God would have done better than he's done. No, no, no. Well, what do you have to do to be accepted by God? Jeremiah goes on to explain. Here we are at the end of Jeremiah 9, verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. What does that mean? He's talking to Jews who outwardly have circumcision, and other, a couple other nations did that too. But in their heart, 
they didn't know him. They were uncircumcised in their heart. Then he mentions some nations that that he had in mind. Egypt and Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all these inhabitants of the desert. All the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. That's the issue. What is your heart condition, friend, before the Lord? Do you really, really know him? Or are you depending upon church membership or water baptism, all of which are important, but not essential? Not essential. And I say, Lord, I think I'm getting the message. I need to be not like the Old Testament legalistic Jews who outwardly conformed to the requirements of God for public worship and ceremonies and sacrifices and sometimes kept the law, but in their heart of hearts, they didn't know the Lord or love him. That is what God wants, our heart. Why? How does that, resp- how does that solve our sin problem? Are you ready? When God created the human race, Adam and Eve, he made them exclusively, uniquely, in the image and likeness of God. No animal has that, just humans. And therefore, the Holy Spirit of God can reach right down into the heart of man because we have his image and his likeness. Romans chapter 1, we're without excuse. We can see the handiwork of God everywhere. We're without excuse. God has told us over and over again in thousands and millions and billions of ways as we look at the universe, the earth, the plants, the animals, the people. We say, Lord, I see something. By your mercy, you have spoken to me in my heart that I might believe in you and put my trust and faith in you now and forever. And so what does God say about people around the world, Gentiles, who've never even heard about Jesus? Listen to this. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. That's the point, the heart. Their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternatingly accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, said Paul, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's it. God has made us in such a way, dear friends, that we can evaluate right right and wrong. Now, I was a godless evolutionist many years ago at Princeton University in 1942 and 43. And I, I, was, I came from a home where the gospel was never shared. And I sat under professors at Princeton University, not one of whom I remember to this day was a true believer. But something in my heart was there. What was it? A conscience, as in every human who's ever lived, a conscience, a a, a capacity to listen to God, to respond to God, to recognize right from wrong. No atheist can say that because he has no basis, you see, for moral choices or a conscience. And I say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to see that I have the capacity by the Holy Spirit to simply what? Believe his word. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no creature that is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.12. So, Lord, help me to realize that you had prepared Israel, just like you prepared every human on this earth, to believe your precious word, to respond to the illuminating, convicting work of the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus said, the Spirit of God will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We can't, he can. We don't, he will, and he does. And I say thank you, Lord, for giving us a perspective on how people in the nation of Israel were saved, not by works, not by the law, but by the grace of God based on the merits of Jesus' blood on the cross, in retrospect, flashback, to count them righteous before God for simple faith in him and his precious word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Thank you, Lord, for that assurance and that marvelous provision that cost my Savior an infinite price to pay as he cried out, It is finished. It's finished. Thank you, God. And so, dear friends, God willing, next week we shall consider the significance of the day of Pentecost for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tune in. Join us. God bless you. Do you desire to learn more about the Bible and God's work throughout history? You can listen to all of our past Encounter God's Truth broadcasts, as well as hundreds of additional sermons and lectures by Dr. Whitcomb at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. And you ladies are especially invited to read the latest devotional thoughts of Mrs. Norma Whitcomb at windowforwomen.blogspot.com. We trust you'll be enriched by that teaching at windowforwomen.blogspot.com. You can find that link on our regular web pages as well. Now, Dr. Whitcomb, in follow-up to today's message, I know there are differing views on the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Can you outline your basic understanding of the Spirit's Old Testament work and whether or not Old Testament believers were regenerated? Wayne, this is a fascinating question. What was the relationship of the Holy Spirit to Old Testament believers? Were they indwelt or not? Well, some say, no, they weren't indwelt. Because David, the king of Israel, prayed in Psalm 51 his great prayer of repentance to God for what he had done to God. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, now listen, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Well, if the Holy Spirit indwelt Old Testament believers, how could he ever depart from an Old Testament believer? And the answer, it seems to me, is this. This is not salvation, it's kingship. He didn't want to lose his right to be the king of Israel. That was what he was praying. And I say, Lord, help me to see now what this means. Here's the answer. Jesus explained to one of the great teachers of Israel in his day, his name is Nicodemus. He said, Sir, I say to you truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, of course, Nicodemus didn't understand what born again really meant. So he uh, asked, how can that happen? How can a man be born when he's old? He, He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now listen carefully to the answer. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There's something vital about your relationship to the Holy Spirit that will allow you to enter the kingdom. What does that mean? Answer, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, don't marvel, that I say to you, you must be born again. Everyone is born of the Spirit who believes in him. And, and he said, well, are you a teacher in Israel? You don't understand this? And friends, here's the point. In the Old Testament, individuals had to be re- regenerated or they couldn't serve him at all with a sin nature. 
they couldn't have done anything independent of the third person of the Godhead that would be pleasing to the Lord, like writing a psalm or serving God, as many of the Old Testament prophets like Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth, were, were, were not men who had the Holy Spirit only temporarily or in a special way that no other believers did. No. The difference is this. The Old Testament predicts that when the kingdom comes, you remember in, in Ezekiel, over and over in his chapters, 36, 37, and so forth, the whole nation will be regenerated. The whole nation, not just individual Jews, but the whole people of Israel will have, enter into the new covenant relationship to the Holy Spirit of God. And I say, Lord, that's amazing. Old Testament believers like Abraham believed God. It was counted him for righteousness. He could not have done that, thought that, believed that without the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in his heart and soul. And so individual believers, like God said through Jesus to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have the Holy Spirit in your life. And I say thank you, Lord, for helping me understand the distinction between Old Testament believers and what the coming kingdom age in which the whole nation will be regenerated by God and become his people. All Israel will be saved and fulfill the new covenant provision of the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Thanks, Dr. Whitcomb, for helping us with that question this week. This program comes to you each week from Whitcomb Ministries Incorporated. Make sure to contact us at whitcombministries.org and at facebook.com slash whitcombministries. Next week, we'll bring us to Pentecost Sunday, and we'll be studying Pentecost in the New Testament here on Encounter God's Truth. So until then, I'm Wayne Shepherd, reminding you of our message that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end.